And I remember when I was about 14 years old, my, my best friend at high school started dating a girl for the first time. And I remember it was a, a Monday morning, we were all kind of catching up on each other's views from the weekend um, at school, and he kind of announced to the group of us, oh, I've just started going out with this girl. And I remember everyone else being super enthusiastic and kind of excited for him and congratulating him. Uh, this is England, so it's all in a very emotionally understated kind of way. Just kind of, <laughs> well done, kind of thing. Uh, I remember everyone else being really excited, but feeling really crushed myself, and I had no idea why. It just suddenly felt like this new development was, was awful for me. I hadn't consciously thought of my friend in any kind of sexual way. But I evidently already had enough of an emotional attachment. The idea of female being deeply intimate with somebody else left me feeling very threatened and very vulnerable. And as the next few years began to unfold, I gradually became aware that I wasn't experiencing the same kinds of desires as most of my friends. I was at Lord Boys High School, so we only ever talked about two subjects, sport and girls. Um, I'm no good at sport. Um, if you pay me money to throw a ball, I will struggle to. Um, if it's possible for your centre of gravity to be outside of your physical body, I might think it involves balance and coordination, and I'm hopeless. So I wasn't much good at talking about sport, and it, I began to realise I wasn't much good at talking about girls either. Everyone was always kind of saying, you know, who do you like, if there's anyone you're pursuing romantically. And I would try and change the subjects as kind of unobviously as I possibly could. But every now and then, it would just the, the conversation would, would go around the group, and then it would be, Sam, who do you like? Who are you interested in? And my only recourse in those moments was just to make up a girl. And I momentarily panic and think, quick, think of a girl's name, think of a girl's name. Any girl's name will do. Right now would be good. And I think, uh, uh, Denise, Denise, yes, Denise. There's a girl called Denise online. That wouldn't entirely get me off the hook because they'd say, oh, do we know her? And I'd have to say, uh, I, I, I don't think you do actually. No, she's she's not from around here. Uh, she's um, yeah, she's actually from Norway. <laughs> I don't know her or have met her or, or even if you have to verify her existence. <laughs> Never really occurred to anyone. Denise is not a traditional Scandinavian. So, <laughs> I, I had a backstory for her lined up just in case that was when I came up. But it, it was a it was a deeply painful time of life. As a, as a teenager, I just wanted to be like my friends. And in what seemed to be one of the most significant ways, I wasn't. And this being 25, 30 years ago, it was a very, very different world indeed. Uh, these were not issues that people were, were open about. Um, there was one boy in my high school who Everyone said it was gay, but he wasn't I've got no idea. But it was very, very clear that it wasn't regarded as a good thing. And so as I became aware of these feelings, I began to realise not only was I not having those romantic attractions for women, I was having them for one or two of my friends, and I was desperate that that wouldn't show somehow. 
Well, when I was 17, on my way back from school one day, um, I was standing at the bus stop waiting for the bus to, to, to pick me up. And I remember standing there and thinking to myself, it was the very first time this thought had ever occurred to me. I remember standing there and thinking to myself, I think I'm gay. And those words had never assembled themselves in that order in my head before. But the moment they did, I remember thinking, well, yeah, obviously I am. I don't have these, these physical feelings towards girls. I do have them towards some guys. And at that stage, I was applying for, for different universities, all of which were in different parts of the country. And I remember thinking, well, this, this could be something I just explore when I get to university. And I knew in those days, universities had LGB societies. And I remember thinking, I could just join one of those groups and just, just see what it's like. And see if this is something I want to run with, this kind of aspect of life. And so as I stood at that bus stop, that was my plan. I was thinking, I'll, I'll just keep quiet about this, but when I go to university, I'll begin to kind of explore it. I'll begin to pursue relationships with other guys. And no one at home would need to know. I'd need a double life if I needed to. But in between that bus stop and arriving at university, something else happened, which was I, I came to faith. That wasn't part of my, my plan for my life at all. But I had a couple of uh, very good Christian friends um, that I knew who were my age, who I deeply respected. They were very different to the other kind of 16, 17 year old guys that I knew. And eventually they said to me, hey, would you like to come to our church as youth ministry? And I remember thinking, no, not really, but... <laughs> um, I remember thinking, but I, I feel like I owe it to these guys to find out a bit more about what they believe. I think that would honour them as friends. And as I finished high school, finished exams, had literally nothing else to do for the rest of the summer, they asked again, do you want to come to our, our church's youth ministry? I couldn't think of a reason not to go quick enough, and so I said, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, well, I have literally nothing else to do. <laughs> um, Invented the internet yet, so that was a distraction. <laughs> Nothing else to do. And I remember going along to that youth group and hearing the gospel for the very first time in my life. Um, and I began to realise immediately that Christianity wasn't about God congratulating good people, it's about a God who comes to find lost people. And something very deep within me recognised in myself that I was lost. Not consciously putting that together because of my, my own sexuality, I wasn't thinking in those terms, but I just had this very deep sense that if there was a God who made me, I didn't know him. And that I ought to. And I figured if he's God and I'm me, then it's probably on me rather than being on him. And yet this God seems to want to seek those who don't know him. And I began to investigate the claims of Jesus, and I remember as I turned 13, feeling a deep sense of being overwhelmed by the love of Christ, I began to understand his death and resurrection for me. And I remember thinking, this is a man I can trust my life with. And I had no idea at all what he taught about human sexuality, no idea. But I just knew that it's Jesus, and therefore whatever it turns out he says will be okay. Because he had already proven to me his goodness. 
And so as a young disciple, I then began to put together the Christian essential ethic, began to study the teaching of the Bible on that, and have found, as I'm sure many of us will, will testify, that every word that comes from our God is a good word for us. It's not always an easy word. Uh, sometimes it's a confounding word, but it is always a good word. Now, as I started exploring that, again, this was nearly 30 years ago now, and it's, it's hard to look back on that time, given the kind of culture that we're in today, without having a sense of whiplash about just how different things now are. Uh, certainly 30 years ago, you wouldn't have admitted to having those kinds of attractions. Uh, very much the baseline cultural assumption was one of actually wanting to, to kind of vilify and bully people who describe themselves as gay. And so much has changed. Um, we're, we're beginning to have conversations now that never happened uh, when I was a teenager. And even within the church, it wasn't an issue I ever heard publicly spoken about, probably until six or seven years into my Christian life. But the fact remains, we do live in a very different cultural time. And so what I want to spend the rest of our time doing in this first session is to think through how have we got to where we are culturally. Um, the, the ministry I work for, Rabbi Zacharias Ministries, we, we did an event uh, several months ago on the issue of gender identity. They asked me to speak uh, and gave me the title, How Can I Know My Gender? And we thought, given this is such a, a live issue in today's culture, it would be a good topic to try and address from a Christian point of view, to try and give some sort of biblical wisdom into such a, a kind of confusing discussion. And so that was our primary goal, was to think, let's try and speak into a conversation that's, that's very much going on in the secular world, and see if we can bring some distinctive Christian perspectives to bear on it. As we prepared for the event, we began to sort of publicise it, advertise it. And one of the things we noticed that we, we really hadn't expected was the reaction of some Christians to the fact that we were running that event. Uh, we began to get emails and uh, messages from people saying, I can't believe you are entertaining such a ridiculous question. Uh, one person wrote in and said, if you say anything other than just look under your pants, then you have completely capitulated to our culture. And so as these kind of note, these sort of messages started to come in from some parts of the Christian world, I remember thinking, okay, I thought this was going to be an evening primarily about bringing a gospel perspective to a secular conversation. I now realize part of this evening is trying to help Christians understand why some people are actually asking this question. And it strikes me that if we, if we take the questions that are on the lips and hearts and minds of our friends who aren't believers, and if our response to those questions is to say, well, that's just ridiculous, I don't think we're going to be in a position to minister the love of Christ here. We actually need to understand where people are coming from in order to win them for Christ. Uh, Jesus, I'm, I'm so struck by this. When Jesus saw the lostness of the crowds, as he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, confused and confusing, he wasn't irritated by their lostness. 
He didn't scold them. He had compassion on them and taught them. And friends, if we're going to have any impact on our culture, it's not going to be through snarky comments about how ridiculous people are being. It's going to be through having compassion. As we see the lostness of the world around us. So I hope this, this session will, will give us a, a kind of a handle on why these people are asking the kinds of questions they're asking today. Why these cultural changes have happened. And I want to outline four particular changes that I've certainly observed that I think help us understand how we got to where we are. These aren't exhaustive, maybe exhausting, that's another question. Um, but they certainly help me to kind of think, okay, that's why people are asking the kinds of things that they're asking today. So four things that have changed. The first thing is this. Our moral intuitions as a culture have changed. Uh, you may be familiar with the, the writer Jonathan Haidt. He wrote a book uh, called The Righteous Mind uh, four or five years ago now. Uh, I think he is described as a uh, social psychologist or something like that. Not a Christian believer, but someone who really studies how people think and how people come to the conventions that they have. Very fascinating writer. And part of the thesis of his book, The Righteous Mind, is that our moral convictions, we arrive at them more by intuition than we do by reason. Something just feels right or it feels wrong. We kind of have a gut-level response to these things. We, we have an intuition. It's not that we all have this very sophisticated ethical framework and every time an issue or a topic comes up, we kind of run it through our ethical system and then work out what we think of it. No, we just have a gut reaction. Uh, we're intuitive. And one of the things Hyde points out is that in the last 10, 15 years, what drives those intuitions has changed. And so whereas intuitively, say 20 years ago, a lot of people would have said, well, I don't think any marriage is right. Today, the vast majority of people would intuitively say, no, I, think that, I think that is right. And he says there are three particular drivers of those moral intuitions that are operating today. They've not been absent in the past, they just now seem to be far more prominent. Uh, three particular drivers, three kind of moral taste buds, if you like. Uh, the first is this, is, is a given thing harmful or not harmful? Does it seem to be causing anyone else any harm? If it doesn't, then it's going to be less likely that will think it's wrong. If it doesn't look like it's going to harm anybody else, we'll kind of think, well, okay, that's it's probably fair enough then. Uh, the second driver is this. Is this particular thing, whatever it is, is it freeing or does it seem to be oppressive? Is it kind of opening up and opening out ways of, of living and being or is it shutting those things down? And the third driver is this, is it fair or does it seem to be discriminatory? I'm using the word seem a lot because these things are kind of subjective. Does it seem to be discriminatory? Is it one rule for one group and a different rule for another group? If it seems to be discriminatory, we're going to instinctively feel as though it's wrong. So those are the three kind of primary drivers that, that Jonathan Hyde identifies. And actually, if you, if you look at an issue like gay marriage, you can see the impact those drivers have had. 
Um, if you ask the question, is it harmful or not, most people would say, well, if, if the nice gay couple down the road from me get married, that's not going to harm me. That's not going to harm anybody else, so therefore I can't say it's wrong. Um, is it freeing or oppressive? Well, we might think, well, surely it can't be right to deny them what many people would assume is a, is a fundamental human right to love who you want to love and to express that love in any way you want to express it. That feels oppressive to deny that to this particular group of people. Um, is it fair or discriminatory? Well, again, it feels unfair if these people can, can call their relationship a marriage, but these other people can't. And so we've seen public opinion change dramatically in the last probably 10, 15 years. Uh, to the point now where very, very few people uh, in, in our kind of secular context would disagree with something like gay marriage. It feels intuitively right. And we need to understand those intuitions if we're going to engage profitably in witnessing and, and having conversations with the, the friends and, and family around us. And too often, I think, if we don't understand those intuitions, we're, we're actually going to be talking past people rather than talking to them. Uh, there used to be a, a comedy sketch show in the UK called A Bitter Fry and Loring. Uh, Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie, before they were kind of serious actors, were, were comedians. They used to have this comedy show. And one of the sketches had, it was two people who were kind of having a, it was like seven the 18th century, two people who were going to have a duel at dawn. And so the, the scene is set that they're kind of outside, it's all kind of misty and steamy. They're both there, they're kind of cycling themselves up for the duel. And whoever it is that oversees a duel, I don't quite understand the rules of these things, comes up to them and says to the first one, pistols or swords? And he thinks for a moment and says, swords, yeah, in this old-fashioned way. And he gets his sword and he starts to kind of practice his moves and is feeling good about himself. And then this official goes up to the other person and says the same question to them. <laughs> pistol or swords? And that guy goes, um, pistol please. And And I mention that because I think sometimes we, we try and make a case for the Christian faith on some of these contentious issues, appealing to what are our own moral intuitions without recognising we're not appealing to the other persons. We prepare for the wrong kind of exchange. Does that make sense? So let me give you an example. Uh, There's a, a show on the BBC back home, which is a sort of one of these uh, moral discussion type programs where they'll pick an issue, have a few different people on who all disagree with each other. The studio audience then sort of weighs in on who they think is right and wrong. And by the end of it, you've had, you know, you've watched a few people chatting with each other for a few minutes, so it's been entertaining. And on one particular episode, they were discussing whether the church should allow gay marriage. Uh, when gay marriage was legalised in the UK, there was a sort of a big exception clause given for the church. And so the discussion was, should the church actually allow gay marriage? And the first speaker was, a, was a, a kind of prominent gay rights activist within the kind of Christian world. And she, she, her case was basically this, she said, listen, God is love. And, and what me and my partner have is love. Therefore, God blesses it. 
And therefore, if God is already blessing us, why on earth won't the church bless him? And you, you could feel this very secular studio audience completely tracking with her. Uh, the other speaker then was a, a, um, a kind of evangelical pastor. And as he tried to respond to these arguments, he kept saying, well, actually, the Bible says that marriage is between a man and a woman. And every time someone from the audience asked him a question, the Bible teaches that, that this is the, the kind of the sexual ethic that we're to live by. Now, he's, he's right. He didn't say anything I, I would have disagreed with. But he was appealing to a moral intuition that the audience did not share. Because as he articulated his position, the audience was simply going, well, why do I care what the Bible says? And I'm sure that man would have gone home at the end of the day and thought to himself, do you know what, that wasn't easy, but I was, I was faithful. And in one sense he was, and if the man credit, I wouldn't have had the come on that TV show and done what he did. But if faithfulness is actually doing the most we can to persuade the other person, I think he could have been more faithful. He was arguing on, by appealing to a basis that was not being shared by the rest of the people in the room. You hadn't actually factored in their moral intuitions. He was arguing as if they had his moral intuitions, which were based on we're Bible-believing Christians. So we need to understand those moral intuitions. And if you're wondering how we should respond to the argument that gay rights activists used, um, I'll share a bit more on that tomorrow. So the, the cheeky train for tomorrow's session. And obviously, it's easier when you're the one sitting on your, your couch at home and, and have time to think through these things. But the, the application of God is love is not everything I think of as love, God is in favour of. So our moral intuitions have changed. We need to understand that. We need to understand what is driving the, the views our friends have on any issues where we want to come in Christ to. Otherwise, we'll talk past them and they'll talk past us and we won't actually engage with each other. But second change is this. Our view of different minority groups has changed. Uh, that applies in all kinds of directions. But as we think about issues of, of human sexuality, we think about how we have treated various types of people in the past as a culture, and we feel a sense of shame. And so we see the pain caused by past homophobia or the demonization of the gay community, and we begin to feel a collective sense of regret. Uh, so you think of a movie like The Imitation Game that came out a few years ago now, um, about uh, a man called Alan Turing. I don't know if you're familiar with the movie or with the, the, the name. Uh, but he was the guy who, who cracked the Enigma Code. Uh, did more than anyone else in the Second World War to crack the Enigma Code that the, the Germans were using. Um, it wasn't, sorry, sorry to say this, it was a, it was a British man who did that. <laughs> in most of the movies, it's normally an American who did it. But, um, uh, in this instance, actually, it was an Englishman who, who managed to do something. Um, anyway, this is a guy who did, you know, an enormous service to his country. Um, 
he was a gay man and was arrested for, for kind of practicing homosexuality and was chemically castrated and ended up taking his own life. And, and we kind of look back on that as a, as a wider culture and we think, that's just not how you treat someone. And actually some of that sense of, of shame and regret, we Christians would, would deeply share. And so as we look back on how different groups have been treated, we, we feel as though we, we need to do better, and that then drives our attitudes today. And so we have the phenomenon called um, intersectionality. If that word isn't familiar, I'm sure the concept it describes will be. Uh, intersectionality is basically a way of thinking whereby we privilege any voice that comes from a, a, a minority or victim status. If someone can legitimately claim to be from a, a, a kind of group or a demographic that has historically been marginalised, their voice carries more weight. Uh, we actually listen to them in a way that is different to how we listen to other people. And if you are at the intersection of more than one such demographic, then you have even more moral authority than anybody else. And so what that means in practice is, if it's a, a conversation about something like human sexuality, if you are a, a black woman who's a lesbian, your voice counts more than if you are a white man who's straight. Uh, it is not a level playing field. Some people have more right to speak into particular issues, other people have less rights. That's the way things are working in our culture today. And so, it's not what you say that is significant, it's who you are as the person saying it. And we need to know who you are saying it in order to know whether what you say is something we need to treat as valid or not. Now, a lot of this is, is comes out of a, and is associated with a, a concern to protect people from harm. That's the justification often given for this kind of way of thinking. I was speaking at a, a university on the East Coast uh, that I won't name um, about a year, year or so ago. Uh, one of the Christian campus groups of it had invited me to come on and simply to do a training session for them on the gospel and sexuality to walk through what, what Jesus teaches on these things. And so that's what I was prepared to, to speak on. They had sort of advertised around their particular group and then mentioned it to a couple of other campus ministries as well. Somewhere along the, the way, the word got out that this event was happening. And the, the, the university campus LGBT plus uh, advocacy group found out and called on people to protest. And so these Christians who weren't, you know, particularly numerous people in this particular campus to start with, now had to, to reckon with the fact that there were going to be people coming specifically to, to protest this event. So I kind of show up largely oblivious to, to most of this having been taking place. And the, the great thing about student protesters is they're there much earlier than everybody else. They actually get there before the event starts, rather than ten minutes afterwards. <laughs> And so for about half an hour, it was just me and a, a group of student protesters. <laughs> and they were absolutely delightful. They had brought pizza, and they offered me some 
Peter, we're not chatting. And I said to him, listen, I, I can see that you have concerns about what is happening tonight. And I want you to know that I'm concerned that you have concerns. So I said, put a bit of time now. If, if you're comfortable doing this, would you mind each sharing what it is you are worried is going to happen this evening? I'm not a, you know, understand. And as we went through, some of the things were, were easy misconceptions that could be corrected. Some person said, I, I think you're going to be speaking in a way that will, will encourage Christians to bully gay people. And I said, I promise you, if that was the case, I would join your protest. I have no desire to do that, every desire not to. But as we went, went around the group, the common theme that seemed to emerge was we think you are going to say things that will be harmful to gay students. And when I kind of asked them to, to unpack what they meant by that, it was very clear that harm meant the presence of a different viewpoint. Even if it's, you know, hopefully graciously expressed, the very presence of that contrary viewpoint was regarded by these students as harmful to their gay friends, and that was why they wanted to, to protest them. Now here's the thing, if, if you believe that someone's words are going to be dangerous and harmful, you don't need to engage that person, you don't need to debate that person, you don't need to reason with that person, you just need to shut them down. And that is why we're seeing so increasingly this, this culture of uh, cancelling speakers and deplatforming certain characters and all the rest of it. It's because there's a there's the belief that actually your viewpoint, it doesn't matter how nice you are, but your actual viewpoint is going to cause emotional and psychological harm to somebody else. Now, at, it, at its best and most sincere, I, I presume there are students who say, you are genuinely concerned that there might be other vulnerable students who might be harmed. But at its worst, it can also be actually very paternalistic. Uh, it can very easily turn into, we think, we are the ones who need to protect all these other different groups of people who are on campus. And so we're here to protect them from ever hearing what you have to say. Which, for some people, actually that would itself be offensive to some people. So our view of different minority groups has changed, and it means that we now find ourselves in this, this kind of public conversation where actually if you're a, a Christian you are regarded as someone who shouldn't really have the right to speak on these things. I mean you can have your opinions if you really must have your opinions, at least have them just at home and in private. But there's increasingly now a push for, for Christians not to share their views in any kind of public space because it's fear that it will be harmful to, to various minority groups. So that is another change. The third change is this, and this is one that has taken place over a longer period of time. Our view of sex and marriage has changed. And this one has its roots further back in the 60s, in the sexual revolution. Um, our view of sex has changed because it has become so uncoupled from procreation that it is now regarded primarily as a means of recreation 
and should never have to be more than that if someone doesn't want it to be. And it's become, and we'll think about this more over the course of the weekend, I'm sure, but actually sexual freedom has become a fundamental human right to say that people. I mean, it's up there with, you know, you've got to have food to eat and a roof over your head. It, it's, it's that level of significance to people. In a world that is increasingly denying the existence of any kind of God or divine being or anything like that, one of the few areas of life left where it feels like someone might just experience something transcendent, uh, transcendent is sex. And so we guard our sexual freedom very, very closely as a culture. Which I think makes sense to me of, of why, you know, the, the, the amazing technological advances we have in understanding what, what happens to a baby as it develops in a womb, why that isn't really shifting the needle on the issue of abortion, because the issue doesn't ultimately turn on the status of the child in the womb. That's not really what the discussion is about. The discussion is about the need people have to retain sexual freedom and for sex to be a means of recreation without any other consequences that weren't intended. Our view of sex has changed, our view of marriage has also changed, and I'm not primarily in this instance thinking about the fact that we now live in a place where there's legalised gay marriage. No, the, the bigger, more significant change happened sometime earlier. The acceptance of gay marriage is simply the inevitable outworking of that prior change. That change is when marriage went from being a lifelong covenant, ordered towards procreation, even if it didn't always result in it, to being now what is effectively a flexible romantic contract. Uh, for most people today, marriage really is a way of saying, we feel a sense of mutual romantic fulfillment, and we want that to be celebrated. And I say it's, it's flexible and contractual because if it gets to the point where actually I'm not feeling romantically fulfilled by you anymore, then I have no obligation to stick around. But if I'm getting out of this what I, I would want to, and you're getting out of this what you want to, then we'll, we'll see how long it lasts. Now, if that is what you really believe marriage is, it's a celebration of mutual romantic fulfillment, it then seems cruel and unusual to deny that opportunity to other forms of union. Um, other types of relationship will want their moment in the sun as well. Will want their sense of romantic fulfillment to be celebrated and, and recognised also. Hence the inevitability of, of legalising gay marriage, and, and now we're seeing increasingly a push towards throuples and, and other sort of numeric combinations that there may be. Because if the whole name of the game is, is actually romantic fulfillment, then why limit it to two? If we're finding our romantic fulfillment in three or five or rather however many, then why can't we call that marriage? Why can't we celebrate that publicly? Now I'm an ordained pastor back in, in the UK, part of the Church of England, and one of the purposes I get to take weddings from time to time, and very much enjoy doing it. It's a great privilege to get to be 
involved in people's marriages in that way. But it's got to the point now where if a, if a couple at church asks me to marry them, I'm always delighted to, but I do have one condition. Uh, it isn't that they don't cover my transport or anything like that. I don't bother about that kind of stuff at all. My condition is I will joyfully, happily marry you, but you may not write your own vows. Because in my experience, the vows people inevitably write entirely list the point of a marriage ceremony. They are always about how the couple feel right now. And we know how you feel right now. It's your wedding day. <laughs> we don't need 15 verses of really bad poetry to know that you guys you know, really, really do want <laughs> Actually, what we need to know from you as a couple is what are your intentions towards each other? What are you promising? It's not I do feel X and Y, it's I will. And what we have a stake as your friends and Christian community in is, you know, in 25 years' time when he's lost his job again, are you going to stick by him? Uh, when she's diagnosed with breast cancer, what are you declaring now your intentions are going to be at that point? Our view of marriage has changed. And then the fourth change is this, our, our anthropology has changed. How we understand what it means to be a human has changed, believe it or not. Because today, the, the real you who you most truly are is something that you can discover yourself by looking deep inside yourself. Whoever you feel yourself to be deep down inside, that is the real you. Only you can find that out. No one else can tell you what that is. No one else can impose that on you. You have to discover that within yourself. And then once you've discovered who you truly are, you have to express that and live by it. And it's everybody else's job to affirm that and celebrate it, whatever it is. Uh, people who are made to watch more Disney movies than I am uh, tell me that that's basically been the message of every Disney movie in the last 10 years has been you've got to be true to yourself. You really must do you. You have to. And so the hero narrative today isn't the, sort of the warrior who goes off and fights a battle and comes back wounded, having saved the lives of Egyptian other soldiers or something like that. The hero narrative today is the person who discovers who they truly are, and even in the face of people who don't accept that, they remain true to themselves. That is our culture's definition of bravery. And bound up with this is the fact that our, our bodies are increasingly seen as nothing more than accidental. And therefore, nothing more than incidental to how we discover who we are. Uh, our bodies have no clue or information at all about who we are. It's purely something we sense and feel deep down inside ourselves. 
So my body is not part of my identity. Actually, it's the blank canvas on which I paint my identity, often increasingly literally. It's simply that the lump of, of matter I, I drag around the planet with me, and I can form it into whatever shape I want. Our anthropology has changed. The real you is who you feel yourself to be deep down inside. Well, there's certainly things we can say in response, of course, to that. But I, I simply offer this observation that in Mark 7, Jesus shows us if you look deep down inside your heart, you don't find the solution to your angst. You find a reason for it. So those are four changes that, that, changes that I have observed. They, they make sense to me of the kinds of questions, objections, concerns that my non-Christian and secular friends have about the Christian faith. Uh, the cumulative effect of those four changes is that when it comes to issues of human sexuality, Christians are increasingly now seen as unfair, unloving, and dangerous. Unfair because the perception is we, we don't treat people the same. Unloving because we are, we are denying and suppressing certain expressions of love. And dangerous because all of the above is deeply harmful to our fellow human beings. So when I speak on this kind of topic evangelistically, the most common objection I get by far to my Christian faith is this that you Christians who believe the Bible, you are responsible for those teenagers taking their own lives. You're dangerous. The Christian sexual ethic, as we've understood it for all these years, is seen as dangerous. Maybe 20 years ago, someone would have looked at the Christian sexual ethic and thought, I don't want anything to do with Christianity. They're so moral. Today, people are likely to look at the Christian sexual ethic and say, I don't want anything to do with Christianity because it is so immoral. Uh, we used to be seen as old-fashioned and quaint. Now we're seen as a threat. Don't you miss the days of just being old-fashioned and quaint? It's like the good old days now. Those four changes, I think, account for why that is often the posture of our secular friends towards the Christian faith. But those four changes also have had a, a significant effect within our churches. Uh, many of us, if we're sort of 25, 30 and, and older, we have lived through those changes. We've actually seen those changes take place. For those who are, say, under 25, this is the only reality they've ever known, contrary. This is the oxygen that they have breathed. And every study that has been done makes it very clear that, that the young people in our churches are far more formed by their smartphones than they are by their immediate Christian community. 
And so even if they have grown up only within the four walls of, of your church and been well taught and well parented and all of the above, their default settings on most of these issues are likely to be far more like their non-Christian friends than their Christian parents. Which means we have a, an increasing number of, of people in our churches, especially younger but not only, who are just not convinced about what the Bible teaches. Or putting it in another way, they, they are convinced the Bible teaches it. They're just not convinced it's good news. They're biblically convinced, but they're not emotionally convinced. And if you're biblically convinced, but not emotionally convinced, you won't stay biblically convinced. People are not going to care if what we believe is true, if they don't believe it's good. And so on many of our churches, even on many, in many of our, our fine churches, I think we are sitting on a generational time bomb. And what I see happening many times is that actually the, the, the people who are, are teaching this, this new generation are unaware of the, the extent to which these folks are actually belonging to a very different culture to those who are teaching them. And what I'm seeing is, is too many youth pastors and parents uh, and church leaders effectively saying to, to this generation, well, I'm going to tell you what I was told when I was your age because it worked on me. And it was fine 30 years ago to say, well, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, and that somehow settled the whole issue. But today, that is not going to convince anyone of anything. All of which is to say, these cultural changes are challenging. And I want us to feel the heaviness of that. I don't think that means we need to be pessimistic. That God is on the throne. As we'll, again, as we'll look at tomorrow, that the gospel is the power of God. We may be intimidated by the cultural times in which we live, it's a sense in which we probably should be intimidated by them. It's challenging. But God isn't sat on his throne chewing his fingernails off with anxiety, thinking, oh man, now that it's got all post-Christian, I just don't know, you know, I knew what I was doing up until now, but now it's just, I'm going to need something different for this generation. No, the Spirit is still active, the Word is still powerful, the Gospel is still transforming lives, the Lamb lives. But we need to do all that we can to understand the people that we're seeking to share Christ with. So, I'm going to leave it there.